of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> when I grew up, one of the great memories I had around Thanksgiving was uh, getting the Christmas decorations out after all the turkey had been eaten and our family would take Thanksgiving Eve that night uh, after we had had family over and we would decorate for Christmas uh, coming up. We'd have a, our decorations up for four or five weeks and I always looked forward to that. We lived in South Florida so we didn't have a fireplace and we had one of those old cardboard uh, popped together 3D ones that had the little light bulb in it and had the little metal thing you spun on the top and it would make it look like it flickered fire on that. And I'd sit there for hours and just watch that and just think that was the greatest thing and listen to records that had, that'll, that'll date me a little bit, uh, LP records, listening to the Christmas songs and uh, love that time of year, love that time of year. But one of the one of the highlights of our year, my sister and I, my older sister and I used to I wouldn't say fight, but we would argue over who would get the opportunity to set up the the manger display on the mantle of our cardboard fireplace. And uh, mom and dad years ago had bought a little little uh, wooden manger scene and had all the little figures. I think they used to be glued to it, but they weren't glued to it when I remembered it. And we had to put all the little figures in there and everything. And there was a stable there and uh, had uh, moss on the roof and had little sheep and cows and had some shepherds there and Mary and Joseph in a manger. And for many years, that's uh, where uh, we kind of got our idea of what happened on Christmas morning and uh, that evening and uh, following and then Christmas morn. And uh, it's amazing. We don't We don't believe that December the 25th is the actual day that Christ was born, but it's the day that we've chosen to celebrate it, and uh, I, uh, I'm thankful for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a time to set it aside. A number of years ago, I had a fellow uh, bring me uh, an article, and I was already pastoring at the time, and uh, he asked me to read it, and it was on uh, the subject, uh, the Tower of the Flock, and I, I thought, well, you know how sometimes people hand you something, and I'll read it when I get to it kind of thing. So it sat on my desk for a few months and or a few weeks, and I, several weeks later I finally had some time, and I picked it up, I began to read the article, and I thought, as I read it, I thought, this is so far removed from what I've always heard was the Christmas story. And I don't know that there's a whole lot of value to this article until he started bringing Scripture into it. And when he began to bring Scripture into it, all of a sudden I began to see some things that I had never seen before and come to find out that there was a much different Christmas Eve and Christmas morning uh, that took place that many years ago, over 2,000 years ago. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to read this, and I may stop and pause every once in a while and emphasize a particular word that may be important. And then we're going to spend about 20 minutes, if you'll bear with me, looking at some Scripture and giving you just a brief, uh, very encapsulated uh, historical lesson on some things of that day. And then we're going to come back to Luke 2. We're going to read it a second time with what we've heard and see if it makes a difference in how we understand the story. Let's look in uh, Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, 
out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David. That's important. The city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. That's a very important statement. And laid him in a manger. That's another important statement. Because there was no room for them in the inn. And the inn is a very important part of this story as well. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field. That phrase is a very important phrase. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, (coughs) which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe (coughs) wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Very important verse, verse number 16. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message this morning and help us and a lot of material to cover, and I pray that it will be done in a way that is very clear to understand and see. May you open our eyes and help us to see the beauty of redemption's plan as it unfolds in the birth of the Lord Jesus. How perfect it was. How splendor, uh, it, how much splendor it had in the perfectness of the plan. And then how it was fully executed, how he fulfilled all the parts of a sacrificial lamb. They could be made uh, as an atonement for man's sin. So help us this morning as we come to your word. Guide and direct our thoughts and our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and keep them handy, we're going to look at a few verses. We're going to start back in Genesis. We're going to do a few verses in Genesis. We're going to do one passage in First Chronicles. We'll do a couple verses in Ruth. And one in Micah. So I'm going to be, we're going to go through four or five different places, but I'll try to keep them easy to get to if it'll help you. And then we're going to come back to Luke chapter two. Uh, the, uh, the Bible speaks of the fact that there is a manger. It does not say that there was a stable. It does not talk about the animals that were at the stable. Uh, and so we've kind of read into scripture some things that really aren't there. And I was talking to somebody uh, this week, and they asked me the question, because they've heard me teach on this before, and they, they said, why is it that 
uh, we don't hear a whole lot about this. And there's not a lot of people. And, and, you know, why is it that there's not too many people talking about this? Well, more and more as it's being taught, uh, people are starting to see and understand this truth. But it's not a new truth. Uh, some of the things that we're going to discuss here are going to be um, written about in uh, Josephus' works. Josephus was a first century historian uh, and uh, wrote about uh, extensively about the time of Christ and the time of the apostles and that sort of uh, period of time. And he uh, brings a lot of light into some of the historical narrative of some of the things we'll look at this morning. Uh, another fellow by the name of um, uh, Eusebius, who was a 4th century historian, specifically on uh, the early church, and uh, spent a lot of time on this, he speaks of the fact that uh, in the fields near Bethlehem uh, was a place called Migdal Eater. Migdal is a Hebrew word, and it just li- literally means, the Migdal Eater literally means and is interpreted as the Tower of the Flock. In fact, we'll see that in Scripture here in just a little bit, where the King James translators translated it, the Tower of the Flock. And uh, so we'll take a look at some of those things. But let's start, if you will, in Genesis chapter 23. Genesis chapter number 23. We're going to go all the way back to the time of Abraham. Now, just to get uh, things kind of laid out here for you, there are five different cities named Bethlehem, or had been down through history, uh, over in the Middle East region. Uh, two of them are most notable. There's one up near Nazareth, up uh, near the Sea of Galilee, in that area a little bit north and east of the Sea of Galilee. And then there's one that is located in the Valley of Ephra, um, and is about the, the ancient part of the city where it would have been when Christ was born, is about four miles, three and a half to four miles to the city gates from the Sheep Gate, uh, that entered into Jerusalem. So it's just right outside uh, of Jerusalem. In fact, Bethlehem is called the daughter of Jerusalem. That's the name that a lot of uh, it's been recognized for many, many centuries as the daughter of Jerusalem. And uh, it's just a small, was a small town, very, uh, very little. In fact, we're going to see that in the book of Micah here in a little bit, how little it was. And so, how do we know which Bethlehem that we're speaking about here? So we're going to establish that very quickly. Uh, is it the one up by the Sea of Galilee and north, or is it the one outside of Jerusalem? Of course, we know it to be the one outside of Jerusalem, but let's look at Scripture and see that this morning. In uh, Genesis chapter number 23, uh, Abraham and Sarah are getting to be up in years, and Sarah dies. And verse number 1, it says, And Sarah was 107 and, 23, uh, and 20 years old when these... These things were years of life of Sarah, and Sarah died in Kirjith Arba. The same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulcher, but that thou mayest bury the dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And entreat for me to, notice this name, Ephron, the son of Zohar. Ephron is very key to this that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, 
which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place among you. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my lord, hear me. The field give I thee in the cave that is therein. I give it thee in the presence of the sons of my people give I it uh, thee. Bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron. And Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, uh, current money from, with the merchant. And the field of Ephron, which was at Machpelah, uh, which was before Mamre, the field, and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were uh, in all the borders round about were made sure. In other words, he, he secured them as, as his own property. That's what that, that phrase means. Unto Abraham, for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of this city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. So Abraham purchases a field from a man by the name of Ephron. In fact, that land became known as the Valley of Ephrathah. And we're going to see that in just a little while uh, because it had been owned by this man by the name of Ephron. Uh, Now we go over to Genesis chapter number 35, just a few chapters over. And Jacob now, we've we've gone through Abraham and Isaac has already uh, gone and passed off the scene. And now we have Jacob coming on the scene here in Genesis chapter number 35. It's important to note that this property was secured by Abraham. It's now a family possession. They own it. It's a legal purchase. He made it sure for his family. And so it was not something that was just lent to him. He didn't just borrow a tomb. He actually owns the property. It now is passed down through the lineage of Abraham. So we get to uh, Genesis chapter number 35. <coughs> And we'll go down to verse number 16. Uh, Let's go to verse 15. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him Bethel. So we all remember Bethel. This was the first place he stayed after he left, uh, after tricking his brother Esau and his father from the birthright and the blessing. And he stays there and he has the vision. (coughs) So this he comes back there. He names this place Bethel. Verse 16. And they journeyed from Bethel. And there was but a little way to come to, here's this word again, Ephrath. This is the land that Abraham had purchased. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benani, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died. And was buried in the way to Ephrath, notice this, which is what? Bethlehem. So which Bethlehem are we speaking about? We're speaking about the Bethlehem that sits overlooking the valley, the land that Abraham purchased, called Ephrath. And 
And the Bible refers to the land of Ephrath and that way, uh, all of that as Bethlehem as a whole, not just the city, but literally the land surrounding the city. In verse number 19. And Jacob, verse number 20, <coughs> excuse me, set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent, notice this, beyond the tower of Edar. So this field that uh, is in the valley of Ephrath, uh, at the time of Jacob, had a tower that was built on it. The tower here was known as and was called the Tower of Edar. Uh, the, again, the uh, Hebrew uh, word would have been Migdal Eder, which is uh, what got translated in our King James Bibles here. This tower was uh, a tower that was used for multiple purposes over several hundred years. Uh, it was used as a watchtower for shepherds as they looked out over the flocks that were in that field uh, of Ephrath, which... Uh, became known later on, in fact, to this day is known as the shepherd's field. Um, the, even, even today in modern Israel, when you go to the Valley of Ephrath, they call that the shepherd's field. Um, and so it was used a lot of times for that. There was a time when the Jebusites came in and had kind of overtaken that portion of the land. And during the time of David, we're going to take a look at that uh, here in just a moment. And while the Jebusites were there, they used it as a garrison. It was a, a defensive tower. And they used it as a lookout and a watch. We're going to get to that in just a few moments. Um, but I want to pause the story here for just a minute, and I want to lay some more groundwork, and then we're going to come right back to it. So remember this tower that is now sitting there at the time of Jacob in the field of Ephrath, all right, or just above the field of Ephrath overlooking it. Now I want to talk a little bit about uh, the inn, all right? Uh, how these ends came to be. Um, what took place during the time of the Medes and the Persians, uh, you have four major world empires, if you'll remember them. You have the Babylonian Empire, you have the, uh, the Mede and Persian Empire, uh, you have the Grecian Empire, and then you have the Roman Empire. And uh, during the time of the Medes and the Persians, they, uh, because Nebuchadnezzar had started some things, they developed... Uh, very great trade routes, uh, roads that caravans would travel with goods and they would uh, do trade uh, between different areas of the country in the Middle East. And what the Persians did is every eight miles along any of the trade highways, they would build these things, and, and I, I can't pronounce the word very well, uh, but they were, it's, uh, they, uh, the best I can pronounce it is a serotite. And it was made for these caravans to lodge in, and they became known as inns uh, later on as um, uh, the languages progressed and was a lodging place for these merchants to come in off of the road. They built them every eight miles, except when they would come to a city. And when they would come to a city, they would look for a threshing floor. Uh, the threshing floor uh, was what then they would use uh, in place of building an inn, they were or these serotites. They would then build the threshing floors. Uh, Josephus speaks of this very clearly about some of these uh, places that were like this. But I want to look at some very important things here as we get to uh, the, go to the book of Ruth with me. Uh, the book of Ruth, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. All right. So you know where that's at, the book of Ruth. 
And we're going to go to chapter number one, <clears throat> Ruth chapter one. We're going to take a little bit of look at this threshing floor for a moment. In Ruth chapter one, we have a story of uh, Naomi and Ruth. Uh, Naomi had gone uh, out of Israel. Uh, because of some famine and her husband and sons. And while they were away, the sons married uh, some wives. And uh, the husband and the sons died. And, um, and so Naomi wants to go back to Israel, uh, back to the Bethlehem area, which is where she was from. And we remember the story how that Ruth said, I'm going to go where you go. Your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. And this is the story of Ruth and Naomi. Now we get to chapter 1 in verse number 21. The Bible, let's back up to verse 19 for a minute and we'll get a running start into this. <coughs> These are speaking of Naomi and Ruth. So the two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi returned, to, uh, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest, or beginning of barley harvest. So they're returning from Moab to Bethlehem. And uh, now go to chapter 3 for a minute. Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, seek, uh, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens uh, thou wast? Behold, uh, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. So Boaz has a threshing floor in Bethlehem, or just outside the gates. We know now because of archaeological digs that have taken place, they found these things. And so outside, just outside the ancient gates of Bethlehem, in the area that is referred to as Bethlehem, lies Boaz's threshing floor. Now I want you to notice this because I want to show you how this threshing floor was used for lodging. It was used as an inn, if you will, later on uh, by some people. In verse number 3, Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make not, make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that there shall that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and covered his feet and laid her down. Now, I wanted to share all that to share this. It was not uncommon for families, for people, especially during time of harvest, to stay in these threshing floors. Now, the threshing floors uh, were described, were uh, are discussed very clearly in a lot of the historical accounts, a lot of the Jewish accounts. And uh, Boaz's threshing floor specifically uh, was an oval shape. Uh, about 150 foot long, about 85 foot wide, and it was dug out about 10 feet deep. So it's kind of a, a bowl-shaped thing down into the, the earth. 
uh, about 10 feet deep, and has some steps going down to the floor. Inside the walls, these 10-foot walls around this, this oval-shaped bowl-looking thing, were cavities that were dug in. They had hallways that would go back into the rock walls, and there were rooms about 8 foot by 10 foot and tall enough for a man to stand that they would put the wheat in when they would thresh the wheat. Um, they would throw the chaff up and the way that the threshing floor was made, the wind would come over the top of that and would take the chaff and blow it away. And so they would put this wheat into these bins. Well, uh, during the time that there was not wheat in them, the travelers would use those places as places of lodging. You could fit three to four people comfortably inside one of these things to spend the night. And so Boaz's threshing floor there at Bethlehem was known and was one of these Persian inns and was utilized for that. Notice in Luke 2, when the Bible talks about it, it it says that uh, it uses the definite article in front of it, that there was no room for them in the inn. It wasn't like there were a bunch of inns. I was years ago at a Christmas play, and they had a, a young person going around knocking on a lot, of, a lot of motel room doors and inn doors. Do you have room? No, sorry, no room. Um, there was only one, uh, and it was referred to there in the Scriptures. And it was Boaz's threshing floor. And it was where um, Boaz and, and Ruth were the line that David came from. So it was where the family would stay. When there was a census, they all had to come back to the city. It was family property. This is where they would go. This is where they would stay. And so they get there, and Mary and Joseph, after traveling a pretty good distance from Galilee, about 75, 80 miles or so from Galilee down into Bethlehem, they get there, and there's not a whole lot. She's, she's great with child. She's needing a place to birth the child. And because of Jewish law, there needed to be some purifying things that took place there and some separation from people. And they just couldn't do it there in the threshing floor. So Joseph is in a quandary. What does he do? His wife is ready to deliver, and there's no place for her to deliver the baby. A friend of mine that is a pastor that has gone over there on an archaeological dig, spent some time over there, has been to the site. They have found the ancient gates of uh, Bethlehem, they're about four miles, three and a half to four miles from the Sheep Gate uh, that goes into Jerusalem. And just outside those gates, they have found where Boaz's threshing floor is, just off to the side away from the city of Jerusalem, uh, by a few hundred yards, uh, probably the length of about two football fields. On the other side of those gates, towards Jerusalem, uh, they've uncovered the ruins of what was referred to here as the Tower of the Flock or the Tower of Edar. Uh, that we read about here earlier in Genesis chapter 35. Now, this this inn is is not super important to the story, other than the fact that a lot of times we get this idea that that they were searching and going from place to place, and that they had this little motel-looking log cabin of some kind, and that there was an old nasty stable out back where the travelers would put their animals. Uh, that was not the case. Uh, they were in a, a threshing floor area, a whole different place, no stable. Uh, they certainly would take care of their animals and stake them around that threshing floor, but no stable involved in it. Um, but over across the way, just another few hundred yards the other direction of the gates, was the, were the ruins of this Tower of Edar that were spoken of there. So now we're going to pick up the story. Okay, I, I paused to kind of insert that about the end so you kind of get a little more understanding of the end for a few moments. But let's go now to 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 
So just to the right, a few more pages, first second Kings, first second Samuel, first second Kings, first second Chronicles. We're going to first Chronicles. <coughs> Excuse me. First Chronicles chapter number eleven. And hold on, because it's getting ready to get kind of exciting here. All right? I know this is not the greatest thing to get a history lesson, but again, if you don't see it in Scripture, sometimes you'll say, well, is this really what takes place? But it's very important that we see it from Scripture. First Chronicles chapter number 11. We're going to begin reading in verse number 4. This is now during the time of David, King David. All right? In verse number 4, the Bible says, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem which is Jabus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. So the Jebusites at this time were kind of in control of the area of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the Valley of Ephrath, and all of that. They, they kind of over, overran that. Verse number 5, And the inhabitants of Jabus, which are the Jebusites, said, unto, said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took, here's the phrase, the castle of Zion which is the city of David. So this castle, this tower that was there, apparently had been added onto. It was a garrison for the Jebusites and had apparently been added onto. And so David makes this castle, this stronghold, uh, the place where he resides. And it becomes known as the city of David. It says in verse 5, which is the city of David. <clears throat> but I want you to notice that this particular event is the place where Bethlehem gets the name the city of David from. The Bible says, And David said, Whosoever smiteth uh, the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Jerui, went first and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle. Therefore, they called it the city of David. Prior to this time, it was just known as Bethlehem or the Valley of Ephrath. Uh, But now it gets the name the city of David. In this case, they called this tower, this garrison, the Tower of Zion, or the Castle of Zion. But it's the same structure. Uh, it's been used now for multiple purposes uh, over the years in this Valley of Ephrath. So the same location, all of these things still kind of uh, referring to the same uh, type of things. Now, here's where it starts to get exciting. Are you ready? We've given you about all the history we're going to give you. Let's now turn to the book of Micah, chapter number 5. Micah is towards the end of the Old Testament. If you go to Matthew and work your way back, it won't be very long before you'll hit Micah. So that's probably the easiest way to do it. He's one of the minor prophets. And uh, minor prophets are not minor because uh, they were less important. They're just minor because there wasn't, their books are very short. They're not very long books. They still have great, very important things in them. Micah chapter number 5. Micah chapter number 5. We find here a prophecy of the birth of the Lord Jesus coming in chapter 5, and then we're going to look at another passage in verse 4, or chapter 4. But let's look in verse number 2 for a minute. But thou, Bethlehem, and, in, and just to make sure we know which Bethlehem he's talking about, he, said, he calls it Bethlehem Ephratah. So we know that this is the Bethlehem that overlooks the valley of Ephrath, where the tower is built where the castle of Zion is. And at this point, the Bible says, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me 
that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Who do you think that's speaking of? Jesus. Jesus. His beginnings, His goings forth have been of old, from everlasting. And it says, He's going to come out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. So this area right outside of Jerusalem, this Ephrathah, this, this valley of Ephrath, that's where He's going to be born. Now let's look back to chapter 4 for a moment. Chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 8. Micah says this, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. So it's the stronghold of Bethlehem. That's what Bethlehem is called, the daughter of Zion. So, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, well, that talks about the fact he's going to come a second time, isn't he? We're looking forward to that one. But the first dominion is going to come to this stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Unto thee it shall come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom, shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, Josephus writes of this shepherd's field, this this valley of Ephrath. During the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, the tower that is referred to here in Micah chapter 4 as the tower of the flock was a tower that was used not by just any shepherds, but they were used by the Levitical, rabbinical shepherds. These were shepherds that their sole purpose was to breed and to find and sort and certify sheep to be sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem. They were within a certain distance. They could only be up to four miles away from the sheep gate in order to be uh, used as a sacrificial lamb because these lambs had certain qualifications. They had to be born in a very clean, pure, kosher environment. They had to be without spot and without blemish. And so these Levitical priests were the only shepherds that were known to watch their flocks by night. Most other shepherds during that time would do a couple of things. First of all, the shepherds would only watch them during the spring and fall of the year. During the summer and winter months, the sheep were allowed to roam freely. But the rabbinical shepherds, these Levitical guys, that had to make sure that the sheep were certified and without spot and blemish had to keep a constant watch on them. Not only that, but the shepherds that were in the area during the spring and during the fall while they were watching their sheep... When it was just common sheep, they would enter them into a fold many times, lay themselves across the gate, and they would go to sleep. They wouldn't necessarily watch the flock all night long. (coughs) But these shepherds had to watch them all night long. They had to make sure that these sheep that had been certified, without spot and without blemish, were kept perfect. That there was nothing that could harm them. They could not have a broken bone. They could not have a flaw in their skin. They could not be attacked by an animal. Uh, they were pure sheep. <coughs> when those sheep were about to give birth, 
they would take them to the tower of the flock. This is well documented in Jewish historic, uh, historic accounts. They would take the ewes that were getting ready to give birth, and rather than let them give birth out in the field, which is what most sheep shepherds would do, they would take them to this tower of the flock. Because in the bottom part of the tower of the flock, they kept it very, very clean, very, very kosher. And when, a, when the sheep was born of a ewe, they would inspect the sheep. If it had any flaws in it, if it had any blemishes, the sheep was turned out and was used for general purposes in the community. But if it was one without spot and without blemish, they would take and wrap him and swaddle the sheep. And they would lay him in a manger in the base of that tower of the flock so that he could calm himself and keep himself from getting spotted by the, the newborns. When they're born, they're, they're flopping around a lot. They don't have a lot of strength. They're anxious. And to keep them from being spotted, they would swaddle them. They would put them in the manger and they would observe them. And when they were certain that this lamb was going to be able to be used as a sacrificial lamb, they would notify the chief shepherd, and he would go up to the top of the tower, and he would light a light at the top of the tower, signifying that a lamb worthy of sacrifice had been born. Micah tells us where the Lord Jesus was going to be born, not just the city. He tells us the exact place. He tells us that it's going to be to the tower of the flock that the first dominion is going to come. It's going to be to this specific place where the sacrificial lambs are born. They are inspected to be without spot and blemish. They are swaddled and laid in a manger. And then a light is lit, signifying that a lamb worthy of sacrifice had been born. Let's go now to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to read our story once again, knowing some of the facts. It's interesting to me that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they brought Him to trial, they took Him through the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. And when they led Him to Golgotha, they led Him out the Sheep Gate. Back when Abraham was told to sacrifice his son, the Bible says that they took him up on the Mount Moriah and Abraham built an altar there and he put Isaac on the altar and was getting ready to sacrifice him and God told him to stop. God didn't want to, God wasn't interested in sacrificing Isaac. He wasn't interested in, in getting Isaac's life. He wanted Abraham's heart. And Abraham showed God that he would withhold nothing from God. He gave him everything. You remember what God said when he, sent the angel to, to stop Abraham. And he said, uh, let him go. And they found the ram in the thicket. And God said this, I will provide myself a lamb. 
He could have just said, I will provide myself, or he could have said, I will provide a lamb. But he didn't say, I will provide a lamb. He said, I will provide myself a lamb. In John chapter number 1, verse number 21, John the Baptist is baptizing in the Jordan River, and he looks up, and here comes Jesus coming towards him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This lamb without spot and without blemish. A lot of things had to fall into line. When God gave Moses and the Levites and the priestly line of Aaron the instructions of how they were to sacrifice, the procedures they were to go through, all of that was to foreshadow the coming of the Lord Jesus. It was a pattern. That which was going to take place. The blood of that innocent lamb was spilt. The priest would then take that blood and he would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat for the atonement of man's sins. It had to be done every year until Jesus came on the scene. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews he died once for all. He doesn't have to die every year. He doesn't continue to die. And some people have asked me in the past, well, when he rose from the dead and Mary saw him in the garden, he told her not to touch him because he had not yet ascended to his father. But a few hours later, he meets with his disciples, and the Bible says that he let them handle him. They touched his his wounds and his side. Somebody asked me, said, isn't there a discrepancy there? I said, no, no, no. Because not only was Jesus Christ our Lamb, but He was also our High Priest. And He took His own blood, perfect, spotless. And sometime between the time He met Mary in the garden and a few hours later when He met with His disciples, the Lord Jesus Christ took His own blood to the heavenly mercy seat. And He sprinkled it on the heavenly mercy seat once and for all. And according to the book of Hebrews, in a tabernacle that was not built, by hands. What a wonderful story. Let's look in verse number 4 of Luke chapter 2 and think of these things. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David. Well, we know where that's at, don't we now? That's where David went in the valley of Ephrath to the castle of Zion. It was known as the city of David because of that which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary as a spoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field. Well, we know what shepherds those are. They were abiding in the field. The Bible says they were keeping watch over their flock by night. There was only a certain type of shepherd that would ever do that. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. I love this. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. This bright, shining light that encapsulated these shepherds. A light that was lit to the whole world signifying that a lamb worthy of sacrifice had been born. 
says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Can I tell you this? Those shepherds didn't have to run through Bethlehem trying to find where Jesus was. They didn't go to other stables, which I'm sure there were stables in Bethlehem, looking for the Christ. In fact, our Bible gives us a clue to that fact that they didn't have to do this. There was only one place where babies were swaddled and placed in a manger, and that was in the tower of the flock. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And I want you to notice this phrase. And they came with what? They came with haste. They knew right where to go. They didn't have to go search through the town. They weren't going in a panic or a frenzy. Where is he? Where is he? They knew right where to go. They came with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the man- in a manger. I, I love the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate it at this time of year. Oftentimes we read Luke chapter 2 to our families before our Christmas meal, or maybe before we open presents. But do we fully understand what took place that night? The perfect Lamb of God, the Lamb that the book of Revelation said had been slain from the foundation of the earth. The plan of redemption for man's soul was in place before God ever even created man. He knew that his son would have to be a lamb of sacrifice. And he couldn't be just any lamb. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that the blood of calves and goats could never, could never redeem man from their sin. It took the blood of an absolutely pure, an absolutely spotless and sinless sacrifice. Someone that would stand in our place as our substitute and take all the punishment that our sin demanded upon Himself. When Jesus was born, He wasn't born in a dirty stable with a bunch of cattle all around. He was born in the place of the sacrificial lambs. He was born as a perfect and a spotless one. He was swaddled. He was looked at by these shepherds. And as they went around making known abroad the things that they had seen and heard, they were declaring that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice. The light of the angels that shone down around them and the continuing light that for the next two years led the wise men to the city of Nazareth indicated that a lamb worthy of sacrifice had been born. It's interesting that as you study the gifts 
that the wise men brought a couple of years later and laid at his feet and worshipped him. The significance that they have, recognizing that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. But not only recognizing that he was King of kings and Lord of lords, but recognizing he was also going to be the one that was born to die. He was born to pay the penalty for my sin and to pay for your sin. And I want to tell you here this morning, if you're here and you say, well, I don't know about all this religious stuff. I don't know. I don't know. Can I tell you, God loves you so much. He loves you so much, He was willing to send His Son to take your punishment. To take what you rightfully deserved. I was out at a restaurant yesterday and somebody asked me how I was doing. I said, I'm way better than I deserve. They said, oh no, you deserve a lot. I said, no. I said, I deserve hell. Because of my sin. I was listening to a a person asked a preacher a few months ago. They said, what's required to go to heaven? And the preacher said, perfection. I remember when I heard him say that, I thought, boy, that's, that's odd to tell somebody that perfection is required to go to heaven. But then he explained himself. I said, boy, that's a good teaching. This person was puzzled by that. And they said, but you just said everybody has sinned. He said, yes, everybody has sinned. Well, then, are there people in heaven? Yes, there are people in heaven. But they've sinned, yes. They're not perfect, no. But to get to heaven, you have to be perfect, yes. She said, how do you explain that? He said, grace. Because when the spotless Lamb of glory went to Calvary and took upon Himself our sin. He also gave to us His righteousness. Those who have put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today, in the eyes of God, look as if we have never sinned because we have the record of the Lord Jesus Christ on our account. I don't know about you, but that's the most glorious news mankind has ever heard. No wonder the angels were so excited to come and to exclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angels weren't talking about world peace. They were talking about peace finally could be had between men and God. We could be reconciled to Him. If you're here and you're a Christian today, the story of Christmas ought to be such that it stirs our hearts. It ought to be that which causes us to rejoice. Christmas, I love being around family. I love the meals. I love the presents. I love the time together. But Christmas is Christmas because of what Christ has done for us. Not because it's just a holiday. Not because we... Do a lot of decorating and cooking and eating, and giving of presents. It's a reflection on what Christ has done for us. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you ought to rejoice in that with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And if you're here today and you say, I don't know, Pastor, I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. I don't know if I'd go to heaven or not. 
Can I tell you this? After all He's done to make it possible for you to go to heaven, wouldn't you just take Him up on the offer? Wouldn't you just put your faith and trust in Him? Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you're saying, well, I'm going to try to live a good life to make it to heaven, you're not going to make it. Well, I'm going to, I'll join the church then, Pastor. You're not going to make it joining the church. Well, I'll get baptized. That's what I'll do. It's not going to get you there. There's only one way to get to heaven. And that is by putting our faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In what He did for us on Calvary by paying our sin debt. Dying and being buried for three days. And then raising again after the third day. If we believe that, if we trust that, if we say that's what I'm depending on for forgiveness of my sin, not my good works, not the family I was born into, not the church membership I have, but I'm trusting only what Christ has done for me. The Bible says that's what makes a man saved. That's what gives us forgiveness of our sin. That's what gives us a guaranteed home in heaven for all of eternity. All because of a little baby that was born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, in the tower of the flock. The perfect, sinless Lamb of God. Let's stand together, shall we? With heads bowed, please, and eyes closed. Perhaps there would be someone here today that say, Pastor, I don't know if I died right now, I'd go to heaven, but I'd sure love to...